Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you're a visitor here today, welcome. Um, we're in a series as a church looking at the words of Jesus and the ideas that he shares with us when he talks about, I have come. And in today's text, rather than we hear the words Jesus say, I have come, he says, I have not come. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So if you have a Bible this morning, I'd like to turn to Matthew 5, verse 17 to 22. We're going to take a look at this passage together this morning. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of these commands and teaches accordingly will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches them, these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said well, you have heard it that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Wow. Let's all breathe for a moment, shall we? <laughs> if you look at the Gospels, when Jesus gets near to the people of the world, if you like, he's very patient, very kind, very loving, often really gentle. But it could be said that when he gets near religious people, the opposite is true. It's always the religious people who were most angry with Jesus and who made him most angry, it seems. It's the crowds, the hoi polloi, the common people of the world who are fascinated with Jesus. Even if they didn't believe what he said, they were interested in what he said. But the religious people, well, maybe less so. Have you ever thought about that? Reflect on it as you read some of the Gospels. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, both in the version we have in Luke and in his version in Matthew, Jesus ends by giving a summary, a conclusion. He says, essentially, I've put before you two ways, two paths. One leads to light, one leads to destruction. Two trees, one has good fruit, one has poisonous fruit. Two houses, one built on sand, the other on rock. And he's saying there, I have two, there are two ways for life. On the surface, they look very similar, but one leads to life. The other destroys its travelers. One feeds its consumer. The other poisons its eaters. One stands firm while the other collapses. 
Jesus says, you choose which one to follow, eat, build your life on. So what are the two ways that Jesus puts in front of us? Now often people read that and say, oh, what Jesus is saying is this. You can either live according to the Sermon on the Mount, the law of God and the commandments. You can either obey the law or you can disobey God's law. And that will lead to destruction. Good fruit, bad fruit. But I'm not sure it makes sense that Jesus would say in summary there are these two ways. They look extremely like, but one is poison and one isn't. The one is like this and the other one's like this. And they look very similar at the conclusion of his sermon if he was offering such contrast in the rest of it. Two trees that look alike, two roads, two houses, similar but different. See, Jesus doesn't really ever talk about in the Sermon on the Mount about people who don't obey God's law. He talks a lot about obeying the law. You pray like this, but you should pray like this. You give to the poor like this, but you should do it like this. The contrast in one sense is not in or out. Both groups of people are obeying the law, it would seem. Both are obeying the Ten Commandments. Both are giving to the poor. Both groups are going to church, you could say. Both groups are engaging with Scripture. But there is a vast difference in the eyes of Jesus. Hence, you used to think it was bad to murder. He doesn't say, and you're right. He says, well, it's bad to murder, but it's bad even to get angry. In fact, to call someone as fool, it's just the same. So this morning we're going to take a little bit of a look at this because in this passage we're going, to, well, we're going to turn our passage around and look at one of the statements Jesus makes about one of the commandments and hopefully look at this in regards to the law and see how Jesus, rather than abolish the law, comes to not only fulfill it but expands it but also makes it possible for us to live in it and to do it. So we take the passage and we're going to move the first two verses to the bottom and we're going to move the, the bottom two verses to the top. So we're going to look at this passage on murder first. I'm guessing most people in the room agree that murder is bad, right? Good. But what about getting angry? Or just calling someone a fool? And wait a minute, doesn't God get angry with people? Didn't Jesus get angry with money changers at the temple? And what about calling somebody a fool? Isn't there many places in the Bible where teachers and prophets call people fools? The idea of a fool in the Bible is a kind of definite category of person. It's a person who's so wise in their own eyes that they go, blind, they go blind really and don't see the havoc that they're causing. So what's going on here? 
Well, I think there's a particular type of anger. There's a particular framework, if you like, for thinking about anger, for calling somebody a fool, that goes along with this term, raka. Now, it's unusual to have an Aramaic word left in a translation from Hebrew of Scripture. Very unusual to find that in the New Testament. You don't see that very often. So why have they just left that one word, translated all the rest, just left that one word in the text? Well, the problem is, you see, the, the word is actually quite difficult to translate into some nice, clean, easy language. Language. It literally means you nothing, you emptiness. You, it wasn't really an insult in one sense. It's kind of worse than that. It means you, you non-entity. It's a bit weird because it's not really a, a verbal insult as such. It's the attitude of kind of being dismissive, being contemptuous, having disdain, condescension, belittling. It's all wrapped up in that one phrase. Now, when we look at the idea of anger, sure, Jesus did get angry, but it was a godly anger. And it was a anger that actually was rooted in not raka, but love. Because when Jesus said, or he got angry, or called someone a fool, he loved the person. He was concerned about being the harm that was being done to them, and there was no sense of raka in it. You see, Jesus was never sneering. You never see him with contempt in that way. In fact, he's taking the person who he's angry with very seriously. The anger is not a seedbed for harm, for lashing out, for causing harm. I can prove it. You know, when Jesus was, was beaten, mocked, spat upon, did he lash out and say, oh, you filthy swine, I'm going to get you? That's not how he was. He said, no, Father, forgive them. They... They don't know what they're doing. Now here's the point. Our anger, for the most part, is not like Jesus' anger. Because our anger is usually filled with contempt. And it's not based on pride in most parts. It's based on ego and personal offense. Here's how you know what kind of anger you carry. If it's resentment, See, if in anger you find your thoughts wanting to diminish that person, you'd like them to be humiliated, to suffer a little bit. If you enjoy even that scenario in your mind, that's the sign of your behavior as a sneer. And Jesus in these moments says, well, that's actually like murder. I'm trying to think of a helpful example of this to try and work it around in our heads. Well, why? How can that be? I went into the, the, the uh, I walked my dog around the edge of the um, car park every now and again, and I noticed over the seasons the acorns. I found two acorn cups today. They both produced an acorn. One of them grew into that enormous tree you see outside you there, and one of them ended up like this. It's a bit mold, well, it is moldy, it squeezes it, the juice comes out of it. It's not very pleasant. It was on the, it was on the concrete, it was on the concrete. Now, both of these acorns originally had enormous potential to grow. Huge. They were both designed to be a great tree. And one of them, well, the squirrels got it, they probably buried it, and that's what it ended up like. And the other one, like this one, well, 
didn't amount to much. The ground they grew up on, well, that's how they ended up. If we look at that in another way, and we say, all of us, in God's eyes, are like acorns, with huge potential, filled, packed, with potential to grow up into great trees. Some of us got planted, some of us got nurtured, and some of us, maybe not so much. Same start, different outcomes. And what Jesus is getting at in one sense here is he's saying, when I look at people, I see the potential in everyone. Everyone has infinite worth, infinite value, infinite promise. And I always see that. I always see that. God always sees that. Now sure, sometimes our things go wrong and we behave badly and we cause things to... But to judge, well, that's a different thing. Jesus is saying, don't look at murders with contempt and say, well, how can anybody do like that? You didn't have their life, did you? You didn't know what ground they grew up on, how they ended up there. What they did was wrong, yes, but... You have the same seed. Your story is just different. Don't think you're better. Not if your anger is filled with grudges, contempt and bitterness. And you think, oh my word. So Jesus is saying to his followers, you can never hold a grudge. You can never get angry. You can never really think anybody's foolish. You must treat every person you encounter with infinite precious worth and value. How are you going to do that? How are you doing that? Who's feeling encouraged so far? How are we doing? Nobody can live like that, can they? You can't, I can't. And really, Jesus drives this home. We have an example of that, of that one commandment. And really drives this home in verse 18. He says, you know, the Pharisees, now the Pharisees, they were a little bit like the Amish of the day. They were really, really observant of the laws. Really, really. I mean, in fact, they sort of multiplied every law they could. They were a bit like VAR. They sat in the background... And made judgment calls on anything that was like, over the, is, is that okay? Is that not okay? I'm not sure whether I've... And they would make the call for people. In the, in the scriptures, we always discredit... There's a lot of discreditation of the Pharisees in the scriptures, but there's also a lot of discreditation in Christian culture. But actually, they were, they were godly people a lot of the time, striving, striving to please God. And... Jesus says, you know what? You've got to be better than those folk. That's what the law demands. 
It doesn't just demand behavioural compliance. It demands that the inner motive is pure. See, on the Sermon on Mount, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear full willness. He expands them and says, actually, there's more to it than that. To the point where everyone in here sitting in this room would say, well, I just can't do that. You'll notice in verse 17, he actually refers to the law and the prophets. He's not just talking about rules, he's talking about the whole of Scripture. The law of the prophets is a way of talking about Scripture. And when you go to the Bible, you don't just get rules, you get stories. Moses, Abraham, David, Esther, and you get these amazing stories of these amazing people who do these amazing things with courage and integrity. And it should be inspiring. But actually, sometimes when you think about it, it's not, because actually they're just crushing examples of these amazing lives that you and I perhaps feel like we're called to live. And perhaps Jesus is indicating this is what we should be like. Here's how you should live, brothers and sisters. But it seems like he's saying, but you'll never do it. You can't do it. And then... In those first few verses, he gives us a clue that actually changes everything around. See, how do you please somebody? Let's look at this first. How do you please somebody? Turn to the person next to you and tell them how you would please somebody. How would you please somebody? In simplest terms, I think, to please somebody, you find out what pleases them and you do it. It's the same with God. You find out what pleases him and you do it. See, what pleases him? The law. The Ten Commandments. Not because it's a set of rules, but actually it's because it's who he is. He's a person of integrity. He's a person who keeps his promises. He's a person who forgives. He's a person who never harms anybody, physically or mentally. He wants you. Jesus wants you to be more and more in love with his father, to please his father, to know his father. And the law is actually a delineation of God's nature. It's not just busy work. Sometimes we look at it and we think, oh, it's just a to-do list. You see, you are made in the image of God to reflect God in his image. So if the Bible says God forgives and you're made in his image, and you don't live up to that, what are you doing? You're violating, in effect, your very design. And there will be a breakdown. 
Just like when you don't change the oil in your car, things will grind and eventually you'll come to a halt, unable to function as intended. Eat fatty foods and you'll have a heart attack. Why? Because you're con causing conflict with your design. And when a physician or a mechanic tells you to do this, it's not busy work or for the sake of it. It's saying that if you don't honour the design of, or you'll find there'll be problems. And if you fail to forgive... And it's not just breaking the rules. It's failing to be like God. It's failing to be like you're intended, your design. And there will be a breakdown. Let me suggest, you know, resentment doesn't just have an impact mentally. It has an impact on physical beings as well. I've seen it. See, Jesus loves you way too much to abolish the law. He wants you to obey the law. But then he says there's, there's a different way. He says, I've come to fulfill the law completely in a new and living way. So now I've come to get rid of it. I can't get rid of it. It's who God is. But it's different to how perhaps you thought it was. How do you fulfill a law? How do you fulfill a law? Two ways, I'd suggest. You either keep it or you pay the penalty. You pay the five pound drop off charge at Heathrow. Or you don't pay and you pay the 80 pound charge at Heathrow. Either you fulfill the law and it has no more claims on you and it can't condemn you, you obey it or you pay the penalty. Either way, it has no claims on you anymore. And the law is not, if you like, a penalty notice from the Lord. It's a life. Complete love, complete justice, complete integrity, complete peace. And Jesus Christ comes to fulfill this. He comes to earth twofold well there's more than that but let's just look at these two things in two ways first of all he fulfills it by living it he obeys it absolutely and not only that he doesn't just cover the rules he fulfills all the exemplars you know like Abraham Moses and David they're great examples but they're flawed but Jesus we see the ultimate ultimate Abraham ultimate Joseph ultimate David ultimate faithful one he fills it completely It's not just that he obeys it, but on top of that, he also pays the penalty as well. So what's so crucial to see is that if he'd only paid the penalty for the law, if you and my punishment on his shoulders and he paid it, it only mean this, that your past is atoned for, if you like. And when you believe in him, be parted. But now when it's up, you've been pardoned and now it's up to you to live properly, you're going to get to heaven. But not only does he, does he live the life and fulfill the law, but he takes punishment 
and he lives this perfect life and he takes upon everything abhorrent and he earns this blessing of salvation. And what this means is that when you believe in him, you get the reward due to God, due a perfect life, without blemish, faultless. And that changes everything. The law can no longer condemn you if you're in Christ. Martin Luther, in his preface to Galatians, he wrote these amazing words. He said, Oh Lord, you would climb up into the kingdom of my conscience and there reign and condemn me for sin and would take from me the joy of my heart which I have by faith in Christ and dive me to desperation that I might be without hope. You have overstepped your bounds. Know your place, O Lord. You are a guide for my behavior, but you are not Savior or Lord of my heart. For I am baptized and through the gospel am called to receive righteousness and eternal life. So trouble me not, for I will not allow you so intolerable a tyrant and tormentor to reign in my heart and conscience. For they are the seat and the temple of Christ, the Son of God who is the king of righteousness and peace, my most sweet saviour and mediator. He shall keep my conscience joyful and quiet in the sound, a pure doctrine of the gospel through the knowledge of the patience and heavenly righteousness. Nothing you can do will get you past the law without Jesus. The bar's too high, folks. The bar's too high. But also, with Jesus, it doesn't mean that we forget the law. Because the law is the heart of God for us. And it's not there as a list of do's and don'ts. It's a route into his presence, actually. In many ways. We can't use it to bargain with God as the Pharisees did. We can't say, well, I've kept the law, so you need to answer my prayers, God. I've been a really good boy this week, not murdered anyone. So you need to answer my prayers, God. You can't do that with it. It's not what it does. But it can help us connect us to who God is. There's so much stuff here this morning. I could spend a long time in here. But I think I want to get to this place whereby I think the church is in a place where it, it needs holiness. We understand the goodness of Christ. We understand the grace that we've been given. But grace leads us to one place. To God. And to be God-like. 
by the Spirit. Paul says we live not under the law. But with it. Christianity as a religion isn't a set of rules. You can't don't get a list of stuff which you have to do and then you're in. It's all about Jesus, accepting what he's done what he's provided for us in this life of grace. But doesn't mean we're not called to this life of holiness. The law still stands. It's the heart and nature of God. Just like a bow our heads for a few moments. Phil's going to come back and uh, just going to sing for a few moments. Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.